0: back into our biblical series, our biblical justice series. We're always in a biblical series. <laughs> well, I, I hope we are. <laughs> you, you can see this is shaping up to be a great morning already. So um, back into our series on biblical justice. Uh, We've we're, we're really been working the last several weeks to, to define what biblical justice is and, and how it is that we do biblical justice, what it looks like in action. We've looked at different facets of biblical justice, the, the primary justice, us all living righteously, like all living justly, and then the, the, the rectifying justice, when people don't live justly, there's a way in which to do justice, to relieve oppression, and those kind of things, and, and those things are biblical, they're, they're, they're co-opted by the world, they're co-opted by the self-righteous, and they're co-opted by the liberals, but, but the reality is that they are biblical, there's biblical ways to approach them. We looked at components necessary for justice, like truth, specifically the truth of God's word, uh, the, the work of God in justifying and sanctifying people, actually making us just and then enabling us to live just. And, and we looked at the gospel as a necessary component, the good news of God's work through Jesus Christ, a necessary component to, to, to live righteously and to, um, well, to, to develop and grow into a society of just. People. That's what the church, in, in part, is. It is a just society that God is creating or raising up from uh, within the world. He is, he's lifted us up, raised us up to be a, a light in the darkness, to be a just people among an unjust people, and so are an unjust people. Now, I've sought to be practical through the whole series. But last week, we really got to the application. Now, last week, the focus was internally. So if you go back and you look at Galatians 5, it's all about the one another. It's about us not devouring one another, us biting and devouring one another, us loving and serving one another, walking in step with the Holy Spirit. As we do that for one another... It's clear that there's implications for the broader world around us, obviously, right? So if we're good to one another, we actually have something to offer the world around us. There's, there's a real implication for that. But the focus was us living as the church and seeking to, to, to look inwardly at the church and at one another and be God's people. Now, to summarize that in one sentence... Uh, would would be this, to live just in an unjust world, by faith, we must live free from sin and the law, serve one another in love, and stay in step with the Holy Spirit. We could apply those things looking outward, but but the text, the passage of scripture applies them focusing inward, and, and so that's what we did. Now, it's striking in that passage that he didn't give us a bunch of rules specific, oh, you must go to church every Sunday. You must make sure you attend community group, whatever night your community group. He, he, didn't, he didn't say that there's all these things that you do, and that's how you, it, it, you, you've got to make sure that you give to every person on a street corner. You've got you to gotta make sure that if the word abortion comes up, that you, you jump and just make sure that everybody knows that you recognize that sin. He, he didn't give us a list of rules to follow like that. He spoke in ways that can be applied in every situation, and if we'll get busy, if the church would get busy doing these things towards one another in front of an unjust world, living free from sin and the law, serving one another in love, and staying in step, putting to practice the things that the Holy Spirit produces in us, there would be no need for the law, because there would be no injustice, right? Like that, if we got busy just doing that, if we could figure out how to apply this so perfectly... That that's who we were. There would be no need for law. We would be fulfilling the law because we would be loving one another the way we've been called to love one another. We would be walking in this primary righteousness, this primary justice, and and so, so. It's just shocking that that's what he does. But the same thing happens repeatedly through the scripture. Not that there aren't some specific commands, things to do. But there's ways in which we see that same, same reality being applied over and over. This week, we're going to turn to a passage that seeks to show us how we live outward, how we, how we live in front of an unjust world that's watching. I think we all recognize and understand that the world expects something of the church. They expect something of Christians. And that's why there's so many comments about, I don't, go, I don't know if you've ever heard this. I've heard this a number of times. I don't go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites in there. Yeah, you're right, there are, and you're one too, so what's the problem, right? Like the, the difference between our hypocrisy, or at least hopefully our hypocrisy, and those of the world, Christians have had to confess that we're hypocrites so that we can follow Christ, right? That's this the big difference, is we're no longer, we no longer, in Christ, because of the gospel, we no longer have to pretend we're not hypocrites. We absolutely are, so there's no sense in pretending anymore. But so is everyone else in the world. So so come, join the hypocrites, and, and let's look at Jesus together, right? Like, that's the idea. But they do. They have an expectation of Christians, and they should. Why should they? Because the Scriptures call us something more. And in Christ, we're actually made able to do more. So so that's what we're called to. And this week, we're going to turn. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. And we're going to see that Peter to a scattered and suffering group of local congregations gives instruction how, how to live just in an unjust world, how to live just when an unjust world is watching. And, and then actually he shows us why we should do it. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through 25, we're going to read, pray, and then we'll, we'll dig in. So picking up in verse 11, the scripture says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as a people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as the servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that, he might, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Just a note, that word is, is easily translated to live justly. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, help us. Every week we find ourselves in a place where we're looking at the scripture and seeking to hear from you, (laughs) and so we need you here. That your people, the church, would hear your voice. That they would know your leading that they would know your power. And and Father, as we talk about the things we're called to do, that we would in no way, in no way mix this up. But this is how we earn our righteousness, or this is how we merit our our reward from you. But by faith, we would live this way because we want to see you glorified. So Father, I, I pray that you would do that work now, and I pray for those who don't know you, To not put this on as a law, thinking they can achieve something. But they would be run to the end of themselves and see that they are unable. And they too would return to Jesus, the shepherd and overseer of their soul. So help us now, I pray. Uh, Meet us where we are. Lead us to where you'd have us to be. Through the reading, the preaching, and the listening to your word. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so I've been asking myself a question, and, and, and it's, it's, it's rooted in this text, but it's been rooted all the way through, this, through, through, through these, uh, the series. It's been rattling around, just kind of bouncing around in my head. I've asked it to a few people uh, along the way, just as their circumstances uh, seem to require. And the question is, is essentially this. At what point does injustice being committed against us or those we love free us or give us the right to act unjustly? At what point do we have the right to commit an injustice or a sin, because essentially that's what injustice is, at what point are we given the right to commit an injustice because we have suffered injustice or because those we love suffer injustice? This is, I think, an extremely relevant question in the world we live today. Because we have, we have arrived at a time where our superheroes, and our, uh, not even superheroes, just our regular heroes, the, 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 the people who uh, lead in the stories we tell, they're no longer Superman and Batman who have these strong moral codes that they live by and, and governs what they do. We, we now are in the day and age of celebrating the anti-hero, the one who blurs the lines on justice and who breaks laws and who causes harm in the name of a greater good. This the show. I was in a conversation the other day. Somebody brought up the the show Blacklist. I don't know if you've seen it, if you're familiar with it. It's a, I think it's been on for several seasons. And the the premise of the sh- of the show is that Raymond Reddington. I, I know more than I should about this. I had to go look some of it up. But I, but I I I I, uh, I wanted to make sure I I say it clearly for those who who, who watch it or who have followed it. But But Raymond Reddington is a a criminal. He's he's a top criminal, like on the most wanted list kind of criminals, right? And he approaches the FBI and enters into this agreement with them to catch other criminals. All in the the premise of protecting one person on the task force that, that he's working with in the FBI. And it's his idea that by being close, he can bring protection and do good for this one person. But all the way through the series, if you've watched it, you'll, you'll know this, all the way through the series, he's blurring the lines of what's right and wrong, breaking laws to, to catch criminals who break laws. When do we have the right to do that? But more than that, as the show progresses, there's an interesting challenge and dilemma that the FBI task force members find themselves in because they too are being challenged in blurring the lines of right and wrong in order of a greater good of putting away these big names. In fact, they justify their actions regularly, repeatedly. They justify their actions in those blurred lines and in those supposedly gray areas by demonstrating, look at who we've put away. Look at this greater good that's come from our unjust actions. That's the world we live in. Everywhere we look, I've suffered injustice. It gives me the right to commit injustice And Peter says, absolutely not. In fact, the whole of Scripture says, absolutely not. You never have the right to do that. You're never afforded the opportunity or the right or the freedom to live unjustly simply because you have suffered injustice. Peter makes that very clear here. He's writing to a group of local churches who are very familiar with persecution. In fact, the church is in the places he's writing to. And if you go back to the beginning of the letter, it's Pontius Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. If you, if you look back at what caused them to be in these places, is because when they were in Jerusalem, they suffered persecution and they were spread out. They were dispersed across Asia Minor. And it tells us in the book of Acts that they go preaching and, and proclaiming the gospel, and as a result, many people come to believe. And so now there's these local churches that exist all across Asia Minor that he's writing to that, that are, are, are familiar with persecution, suffering injustice, being oppressed either firsthand or at least secondhand because they know the people who proclaim the gospel to them. Now, depending on when you date the, the, the timing of this letter, so some people hold that this is a later date, sometime after 64 AD, when Nero comes into power in Rome, when he's Caesar and when when he's the emperor, and Nero brings some severe persecution. Uh, against the church. And if, if that's when you date this letter, and many, many scholars do, they date this letter in the time of suffering. I used to be of that opinion, and I, after preaching through it a couple of times and looking at it and looking at the context around it, I, I think that the persecution he speaks of is more social. They're not welcome where they are. They aren't, they aren't uh, accepted because they don't fit into the, the Caesar worship or the emperor worship of Rome, so that they won't say Caesar is Lord because they know Christ is Lord. But there is a way in which they're being persecuted, but Peter seems to indicate in, in the letter and warn them of this fiery trial that they are about to undergo, that, that likely he understands prophetically, or in some, some revelation, some way that the Lord has spoken to him, he understands that a greater trial is in front of them. And Nero is going to burn, impale them on stakes, burn them as light for the city streets, dress them up in animals' clothing and throw them into the Colosseum to be ripped apart by animals. Uh, All all kinds of horrific things that were being done simply because they were Christian. But these people know and understand persecution. They understand what it is to suffer oppression as a result of uh, uh, the, the, the people who are in authority and power using that authority and power in a negative way. And so he has is, he is written to them, one to encourage them, but also to direct them on how they are to live just in the face of all the injustice they are enduring. So, guess what? We need to hear it too, because we still live in an unjust world. We still live in a world that authority isn't either welcome or handled properly. We, we live in a world that, that, that authority is, and power are abused. And so, we need to understand how do we do this? As a Christian people, how do we do this? And Peter helps us understand that. He helps us see that. And it it can be broken down in a number of ways, and and, and I'm not going to follow the flow of the text exactly. I want us to see five, I think, five points or principles that that this kind of points out for us so that we have something substantial, something to act on, something to 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 undergird, to to substantiate our action in an unjust world. And and the first one is this. To live just in an unjust world, we prioritize our citizenship as members of God's kingdom. Look look back at verses 11 and 12, where, where we started reading. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What he's saying is, you're the beloved, you're the people who I know, who I love, who I, who I walk in relationship with, who I'm seeking to lead and be brother with, a brother and a brother in Christ to. We are sojourners and exiles. We do not belong. That's the idea of citizenship, the idea of, 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 of being in the world, as Jesus prays in John 17, being in the world, but not of the world. We're here, but we don't belong here. Now, Peter addresses that in the passage that immediately precedes this section that we read. If you look just at verses 9 and 10, you are a chosen race. Listen to the identity language. This is covenantal language where God is is establishing or affirming, if you will, in his word, affirming this covenantal relationship with his people, giving them a new identity and new citizenship. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In in all the ways we seek to identify and connect ourselves to other people, there is one overarching, one overriding reality. You are either in Christ or you're not. You're either in covenant relationship with God or you're not. You're either of his people or you're not. You've either received his mercy or you haven't. There's two peoples in the world. That's it. Oh, we, can, we, we, we can relegate it. We, we can subdivide it all we want. White, black, rich, poor, male, female, all these things. There's two people in the world, either in Christ or not in Christ. In relationship to God, in a good relationship with God Or someone who's going to face his judgment and condemnation. And it sounds harsh. It sounds as as if I'm seeking to be uncompatic. I'm not. It's just a reality. We are identified no longer by our citizenship in the world, but by our relationship to God. We have been counted as strangers and aliens in the world. We don't belong here. This is not our home. This is not the land that defines us. And so our citizenship in the the kingdom of God must be prioritized. Paul picks up on this idea in writing to the church in Philippi. He writes Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a people who are waiting on the land to be revealed. We are a people who are looking forward to going home, but who aren't home yet. The, The point is, But we don't live and establish this place as our home. We don't don't live and and establish all all, all the stuff that we would for our home. We need to quit nesting here and preparing for living there. Right? That's a radically different way of approaching our life. We've got to prioritize. We're going to do justice. If we're going to live just in an unjust world, we've got to prioritize this citizenship. And how do we do that? He gives us a couple of ways, and these serve really as overarching. This is an overarching thought that's going to get broken out across the rest of the passage. But he tells us what not to do, and he tells us what to do. And if you think back to what we studied, uh, the, that the Scripture tells us what not to do. That's first, 2 Timothy 3.16. The Scripture tells us what not to do, and it tells us what to do. Peter does it here. First, he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. See, like Paul, in the passage that we studied last week, Peter's not talking about this flesh, the physical flesh that hangs on our bones and covers our organs. He's not, he's not speaking of the body. He's speaking of the sinful nature that still resides within us. He's, he's talking about this, this, this desire and this compulsion and this nature that, that, des, that, that, that seeks to sin and, and longs to sin and wants to go its own way and have its own stuff. We've got to abstain from the passions Passions of the flesh peter isn't he's not not just saying don't act sinfully he is saying don't act sinfully but what's he really addressing the passions the desires we're we're to resist the very desire for sin that's why when jesus when jesus spoke of adultery he, he, he said yeah yeah you've heard it said don't 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 commit adultery but i tell you if you've looked on a woman with lust in your heart You've already done it. Like the desire is the indication that sin is alive. And and so the reality is that the the, the war that we're waging, the fight that we're entering as we seek to abstain from the passions of the flesh is not simply in the activity, but in the desire that leads to the activity. Wayne Grudem makes a good point in in his comments on this passage. He writes, such a command implies that inward desires are not uncontrollable, but can be consciously nurtured or restrained. So the idea, we can consciously give to them and feed those desires by giving into them, or we can restrain those desires. He makes the point, a needed rebuke to our modern society, which takes feelings as, morally neut- as a morally neutral given and disparages any who would say that some feelings and desires are wrong. Let me me just make it clear so that you know where I stand, where I think the Bible stands, and where I would call you as a church to stand. Our desires for sinful things are wrong. We're not allowed. We're not given the right. It's not not okay to sit and have the thought is as damning as actually committing the action. We've got to control these things. And Peter's saying, abstain from these passions of the flesh. Don't give in to those desires. Do the, do, fight the fight at the level of desire. Certainly stop acting sinfully. This is, in essence, what it is to do justice, to live justly. Don't sin. But if we're going to see that begin to take place in our lives, it's not going to, it's not going to stop simply by dealing with the symptom of the desire. It's going to be dealing with the source of the action, which is the desire. The desire. So, abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's what we, we, we don't do, that we don't give into that. But what do we do? Live good lives for the glory of God. Look back again at 11 and 12, where he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So, so, so honorable according to who? Obviously, God, right? He, he's the standard for this. Good, of course. So, when they speak against you as evildoers, because you're living honorably, they're going to speak to you as against you as evildoers. And so, if you stand in, in, in this world today, if you stand for certain things—biblical ethics and biblical morals—if you stand for those things, you are considered a backwards bigot, sometimes an abuser and an oppressor. In fact, as a white, as a Christian white male, I'm the top of the food chain for oppression in our society. And if you're a white male Christian, let me say that a little differently: a white male cisgender. Christian, I'm not talking about identifying, I'm talking about actually physically male, white male Christian, then you too are part of the problem according to the way the world looks at this. We are backwards, bigoted, harmful people, and anyone who joins us has just succumbed to our oppression. That's the the idea. That's the presentation being presented. We're called evil, but we don't quit. We don't stop living honorably. We we continue to live this way. Why do we do that? That they may see your good deeds. They're not going to affirm them as good. They're not going to appreciate them as good. They're going to see your good deeds. And when confronted with the reality of who God is, on the day he visits, whether that's meaning the day of salvation for them or the day of judgment, they will see his glory and they will glorify him. For their good, whether they receive it as good or not, for the good of the world, we live good lives for the glory of God. So we give up passions of the flesh and we give ourselves to living good lives. Why? Because we are no longer at home here. We are uh, strangers and, and aliens. We are, we are pilgrims traveling through. To live just in an unjust world, we prioritize our citizenship as members of God's kingdom. At its core, at its core, this is what justice is all about. It's us living according to the kingdom ethic, kingdom morals, and not what the world approves and affirms. It's us not sinning and actually doing good. If you want to know how to do justice, live in accordance with God's commands, don't sin. As soon as you sin, you're committing an injustice against someone. God? Yes. Someone else? Yes. There's no such thing as sin that happens in a vacuum. People are too woven together. Our lives are too woven together. So so this is what we do. We start by prioritizing our citizenship in God's kingdom. Next, to live just in an unjust world, we serve God by submitting also to human authority. Now tell me this doesn't fly in the face of what's going on in our culture today because authority is deemed as wrong. It's negative. In fact, the whole idea is we're supposed to be Unseating power. We're supposed to be speaking to power and rebelling against power. That's not how Peter deals with it here. Peter says, "No, be subject." Look at verse thirteen. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, and, and really it, it, that that word institution shouldn't be like a system. It shouldn't be a, an organization. We should see that as people seek to be to seek uh, or for the Lord's sake be subject to every. Human that has authority would be a better way to understand that, and then he breaks it down, and he's going to break it down across this passage in in what could be three or four areas, depending on who you read from and who you study from. But he's going to deal deal with governors, emperors, and governors, they're representatives of the emperors. He's going to deal with servants to masters, and he's going to deal with hu- uh, wives to husbands, and even there's there's implication of husbands to wives. But but we're going to walk through them and 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 take a look at each of them. First, we're going to start with the governmental authority because that's where. That's where Peter starts. So he says, Be be subject to every human creature or or human that has authority, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil. Citizens, submit to the emperor. (laughs) Peter writes this in such a way that if we reject, if we just blanketly reject the authority of our governments... That we're actually re- re- we're rejecting the authority of God. You see that? This is under God's authority. This is God's will. Verse fifteen: For this is the will of God. Right? That, this is what we're called to do. Citizens submit to emperors and governors. Now he tells us what the role is. He tells us what government's supposed to be about doing. The the, the governors are sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil, so they restrain evil by punishing evil, and to praise those, and they promote good by praising those who do good. So they restrain evil, they promote good, and that's the role of government, or at least in part the role of government. It breaks itself out in a number of different ways. But the way he writes it, and the people he writes it to, helps us see that he's not demanding it be a just government that you submit to. If you take this as a late writing and Nero's the emperor, then obviously it's not a just government. They're suffering severe persecution and oppression under Nero. If you take an early writing, like I do, before, before Nero, they're still suffering under the rule of Caesar. The, 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 the reality is, Rome was not a just government. They, they didn't care for, they, they promoted themselves, they, 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 they fought within. There's all kinds of problems in Roman rule. They were, a, they were a kingdom because they had gone out and fought and beat and oppressed many, many people. These are the people he's calling, these are the government that he's calling these people to, to um, submit to, to subject themselves to. And Peter doesn't say when you get the leaders you want, subject yourself to them. He doesn't say to them, hey, when, 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 you, when you come to this place where finally there's a just government, then submit to it. He's writing to a people who understand what it is to be persecuted by the governing authority. He's writing to a people who, who understand what it is to exist in a world without a just government. And these people, it's God's will that these Christians submit to those people. And that principle still applies today. Uh, we don't submit just because the guy that we voted for gets in office or because we agree with all the policies of the person that holds the office. In, in fact, I would just ask the question, when has that ever occurred? So, so I, I, because we deal more with people who lean right and, and give themselves to... I, I push hard on this and I don't always intend to, but it's something we have to be... There is no moral high ground for the Republican Party. Hear me. I appreciate that their platform seeks to protect life in the sense of, in, in the sense of uh, pro-life options, uh, like in, in not not promoting, certainly recognizing the the, the horrors of abortion. <clears throat> but show me one leader in the Republican Party that has been perfectly just and ruled perfectly just. And we're most divided, most recently it seems we're most divided, not over someone who seems moral on the outside and someone who's immoral on the outside. It seems the church is wrestling with these issues because people are so clearly immoral in every way. And we're arguing over over someone that acts like Trump versus someone that acts like Biden. As if we have some moral high ground to stand on, and that this is a moral choice. It's not. We're just trading one set of injustices for another, which is what we always do when we seek to, to uh, uh, live just by the by the rule of law and by the push of and 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 and, and demand for a particular activity. We always just displace the injustice. It's all that's ever happening. So, so it's never going to occur. But the question must be asked. The question must be asked. Is this blind obedience? Is there ever a time that we should or, or must disobey the government? It, uh, again, Wayne Grudem is, is helpful here in his commentary on this. And, and just so that you know, he's also written a massive Christian ethic book, ethics book. We're going to actually use it next term in our equip classes. We're going to offer a Christian ethics class uh, that we're going to use from him. But in his commentary on this passage, he writes this. There are occasions recorded in Scripture when God's people have disobeyed human government and been approved by God for so doing. So, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they disobeyed the ruling authority in order to honor God. What happened to them? Thrown in the fiery furnace. Uh, uh, Daniel disobeys the ruling authority to honor God. What happens to him? Thrown in the lion's den, Right? Like there's, there's options, for, there's opportunities for this. There, we can see it happening in the scripture. But he says, he's, he, he goes on. So, so there's, there's occasions, it's honored by God for their doing it, but they deal with the consequences that come with it. Then, now he goes on. The principle to be drawn from these passages is, obey except when commanded to sin. This is the Christian's responsibility toward all forms of, the rightful, of rightful human authority, whether the individual Christian agrees with all the policies of that authority or or not. We are not given a right because of other people's injustice to begin to act unjustly. The ruling ruling authority, the leader, will be held accountable for his injustice. We are no more corporately responsible for injustice happening at a governmental level than we are corporately responsible for the slave owners that, that happened generations ago. Those are both lies that the that, that a progressive left, that a progressive ideology has promoted. We are not corporately responsible. We will not stand in judgment because of other people's sin. We will stand in judgment because of our own sin. And we will either be forgiven by God's grace for our own sin, or we will be condemned, and he will deal with us justly according to our sin. This is the reality. We're called to submit to these people even if we don't agree with them. When the Jews were seeking to trip up Jesus, and and they asked him in the temple, well, wait a minute, Uh, uh, should we pay taxes? Like, do you know what the Roman government does with our taxes? Should we pay taxes? And How can we remain Jewish if we pay taxes to these evil people? Now, that's me expounding a little bit and adding a little bit. They didn't give us all that. But isn't that what's at our heart when we start talking about our tax dollars going to an American government that's unjust? Because we don't want our tax dollars to fund abortion. I don't want my tax dollars to fund abortion. But I also don't want my tax dollars to fund unjust war. I don't want my tax dollars to to do much of the unjust things that our government does on a daily basis. Because there's unjust people ruling in our unjust government. But this is not my home. This is not our citizenship. This is not where we belong. But we submit to it. We, We recognize it. And we're going to see in just a minute. We honor it. We have a responsibility here to submit to this government. Why? Because this is God's will so that it silences the foolishness of ignorant people. Listen, we are never commanded to disobey the government. We are never commanded to rebel against the government in the scripture. No, no direct command. Certainly we can draw principles from descriptive passages. We are never prescribed to rebel against the government. So, If we're going to obey, or or if we're going to disobey, and this has come up in in the last year, whether we wore masks or whether we required masks or whether we met or didn't meet, all those things were real issues. We need to be certain that in disobeying the government, it is in in, in obedience to a direct command from God. Because if we disobey the government, and it is not a direct command from God that we are seeking to obey, then we are actually disobeying God. And we are answering injustice with injustice. God forbid. Who do we think we are? And when Christians raise to that level, God's grace on them. Right? I mean, what else do we have? There's no, we we can't do that. The whole point of submitting to the government is submitting to him. So, So generally speaking, as long as the government doesn't command us to do what God has commanded us not to do. So the Chinese people, they command people, if you've got two kids, and I think this is over now, I think they've lifted it, but if you've got two kids, you can't have any more, so you've got to kill that one, or or, or you just can't have kids. We couldn't do that. If they're commanding us to do something God has commanded us not to do, then we must disobey them. If the governing rulers are commanding us to not do something that God has expressly commanded us to do, then we must still do it, as in the case of Peter and John, when they continued to evangelize even though the ruling authority of their day said don't evangelize and they dealt with the consequences because of it this is where we stand because this is where scripture calls us to stand this is living just even when the world around us and maybe even some in the church would disagree I i think it's too clear in the scripture for us to debate this issue you may not like it i don't like it i don't like being told what to do i struggle against authority that's my flesh what am i supposed to do abstain from the passions of the flesh, do good, so that God's glory can be shown. That's what we do. He's going to deal with socioeconomic authority. He's going to specifically apply it to servants and masters, or slaves and masters, depending on which translation you're reading. Slaves and masters. Slaves, submit to your master. You who are under authority, and not the good authority, not the one who's using authority to benefit you, but the one who's oppressing you and keeping you down by their authority. What's shocking in the world that we live in, and what's shocking is he doesn't say, get up and rebel, tear down, burn it all down, build something new. He doesn't say that at all. He says, submit. Tom Schreiner, in his commentary, he says, New Testament writers were not social revolutionaries. If they weren't, when are we given the right to be? New Testament writers were not social revolutionaries. They did not believe the overhauling of social structures would transform culture. Their concern was the relationship of individuals to God, and they focused on sin and rebellion of individuals against their creator. He, he, I cut some out, but he goes on to say, he goes on to make the point here, if enough individuals are transformed, of course society as a whole benefits, and the Christian faith begins to function as a, as a, as a leavening influence. We want to transform culture. I'm not saying don't make good laws. We should, we should seek to make good laws. We should call our government to, to rule justly. We should expect uh, uh, employers to pay right. We, we, should, we should expect people to do just things. But we are never going to arrive at a just society by the function of law or by force. The transforming work of the gospel transforms hearts and enables people to live just. And so we go proclaiming the gospel, knowing that as hearts are transformed, whether they're governors or masters, whether they're they're people who are uh, uh, holding authority in some office or whether they're just business owners, their heart will be transformed and they will begin to treat one another justly and they will begin to treat those under them justly. Now, we didn't read this, but, but, but I'm going to highlight it just real quickly. Household authority, he goes into chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. You can go and read that. Wife to husband, and there's an implication even for husbands to wives to, 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 to this mutual submission, to giving of life to one another, to ensuring that authority in the house, in, in, in the society, and in the government, that that authority is used, or, or even when that authority is misused, that God's people still recognize His authority through that broken, unjust authority. So, to live just in an unjust world, we serve God by submitting also to human authority. To live just in an unjust world, we obey God by by being considerate of others. Look at verse seventeen. He, he stops here, and it's kind of like this way in which verse 16 and 17 is almost like a transition where he's about to go to serving some masters. But, but he stops and he says, Live as a people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. You remember those words from Paul. Paul said the same exact thing. Don't, you're, you're free, so live that way. But don't use your freedom as a, as a, as a license to, to sin. So don't use your, your freedom as a, as a cover-up for evil, <clears throat> but living as servants of God, so we're called to obey him, honor everyone. So Christians are set free in Christ. We're we're freed from our sinful flesh, our sinful nature. We're freed from the, the law that commands us to live a certain way. And we've been freed to live in obedience to and freed to be servants of God. And in so doing, what we're seeing in this passage is in our freedom, we're actually obligated to treat people a certain way. Honor everyone. Who do you think that everyone means? Everyone. It doesn't exclude anyone. Whether they're like you, whether they look like you, whether they smell like you, whether they eat like you, whether they worship like you, whether they, whatever, whatever division you can think of, everyone are, is to be treated with the, regardless of age, gender, ethnicity, all the different ways in which we can divide the dignity and respect of the reality that we are humans created in the image of God. Every last one of us is soon. And listen, listen, as soon as we begin to promote one of these over another, so white for years, still today, in many ways, exalted over black, right? It's the truth. Because racism exists all around us. Absolutely true. To deny it would be a lie. But what happens when we promote somebody, a, a black person, promote them simply because they're black? What happens when we put a person up simply because of the color of their skin? Have we not just done what everybody else is doing? And we've dishonored some to honor some physical characteristic? Listen, I I know this is tough stuff, and I, I want us to be cautious and careful. Everyone deserves this honor. Not because of who they are. Not because of what they do. Not because of the color of their skin. Not because of their station in life. Not because of their gender. Not because of anything that the world looks at. But because we are all image bearers of God, regardless of who the person is... From infant or unborn, let's say unborn, to in a coma, not making conscious choices, on the edge of death, everyone, honor them. Honor them. That means don't dishonor them, right? That's the idea. We're seeking to treat everyone with the same dignity and respect because every one of us are created in the image of God. So honor everyone. This doesn't mean that we don't confront sin. This doesn't mean that we don't hold people accountable to the wrongs that they commit. This doesn't mean that we don't exercise authority if we're people in authority. What it does mean is that these things, this honoring of everyone, governs how we do it. It governs what we do. So honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Now, it's interesting because honor everyone includes the brotherhood, right? Everyone, The brother and sister Christian part of everyone, but there's a way in which the brotherhood becomes very specific about a very specific group of people. The, the, the brotherhood, the brothers and sisters in Christ, the church, love the brotherhood. There's a way in which we're to prioritize the brotherhood. If you go back to Galatians, where we studied last week, Paul says the same thing. Do good to everyone, especially the household of faith. Right? This is Galatians 6. If you go back and you study that passage, you'll see there's a way in which we're to prioritize one another. And so, so love the brotherhood doesn't mean we should not love those who are lost or not love our enemies or not love those who are who are mistreating us but there's a specific way in the same way that every husband is not called in the same way that a husband is not called to love every woman the same Christians are not called to love every person the same it's here just true every wife if she seeks to love every man like she loves her husband it's not going to go in good, good places, right? Like not, that's not going to lead to justice, right? So, so we have to recognize our relationship together in Christ put, puts these people to us in a special place. Love the brotherhood. Honor them, yes. Love them, yes. So love the brotherhood, this, this proactive sacrificial effort to be a blessing and benefit to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must prioritize that. Then he says, fear God. He throws this in here, and I think because he's about to tell us to honor the emperor, and he's already told us to subject ourselves to the emperor, he's setting God above everyone else. He's setting God in this place that he is distinct in every way. This attitude toward we're to revere him, respect him at every level. Are we to honor him? Absolutely, we're to honor him. But in a way that's distinct from every other relationship that we have, we revere and respect God over everyone else. And then finally, honor the emperor. So, so we're living in an unjust world. By, by obeying God when, when we're considerate to other people, honor the emperor. So I laugh at the joke. Uh, what's the Brandon joke that's going around? In fact, I laughed at it this morning. Sorry, Brandon. This is not in my notes, but it's, it's a good illustration. I laugh at that. The, 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 the let's go Brandon or whatever that thing that's going around on social media. You know, I, I, I laugh at that. I think it's funny. I, I, I'm concerned about some of the stuff that I see like that, that he does, that, that Biden's choices are making. I'm concerned about seemingly, there's, well, he just doesn't seem mentally all there, doesn't seem mentally competent. There's real concerns. But he's still my president. He's still your president. And for those of us that are conservative, and, I, and just so you know, I push back on Republicans quite a bit. I'm conservative in my politics. I, I'm a patriot. I served in the U.S. military. I'm proud of that. I'm not ashamed of that in any way. I don't go promoting it. So that, In fact, I'm upset because you guys didn't tell me Happy Veterans Day. No, I don't, I don't do that. That's not what this is about. But, but listen, he is still our president. And the scriptures call us to pray for him. Specifically, the scriptures say pray for him. Maybe the problem with Biden is not just Biden. Maybe the church has not prayed for Biden. We cannot do justice while we're running around like the rest of the world demeaning our, govern, our governing authorities. You hear me? It doesn't work. When do we get the right to do injustice because people are unjust? Never. Never. And we're about to see that work itself out a little bit more specifically. To live just in an unjust world, we obey God by being considerate toward others. To live just in an unjust world, we remain mindful of God and endure endure injustice without multiplying it. Listen, look at at verses 19 and 20. He's talking specifically to the servant and the slave, but, but but the way he does this, it seems as if these things... These are illustrations, these are applications in this moment, but they're applicable in all the ways that we're to sub- subject ourselves to, to human authority. So, so he says, This is a gracious thing when mindful of God. In verse 19, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Look at verse 20. This is tough, but real. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Like when you deserve the beating. How commendable is that if you endure that beating? No, you deserved it. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Let me just ask you a question. How is it that we understand and experience God's grace in our lives? Is it because we've treated him honorably at every step? Is it because we've deserved it from him in some way? Is it because he's obligated to do these things? no if it was if if that were the case then then grace would no longer be grace it would be merited favor it would be it would be earned good it would be his obligation to do something that's not grace Grace is unobligated. He didn't have to give it to us. He, he, would, he could justly condemn every last person who has ever lived, and he would be just because we have all sinned against him. We have all discounted him. We have all rejected him. We can go back to Romans chapter 3. No one sees God. None is righteous. No, not one. And it speaks of death coming out of our bowels and our, our insides, right? Like th- There's this dark reality of who we are as people, and yet God still gave us grace. So who do we look like most when suffering injustice? Who do we look like most when we rebel and when we throw up our fists and we're going we're gonna to show you, we're going to get ours? Who do we look like in that? Who do we look like when not because we're obligated to, when not because they deserve it, not because they could pay us back or we we're demanding them to pay us back? Who do we look like when we do good instead? We look like, we, we like the God who sent his son to die in our place and for our sin. To live just in an unjust world, we must remain mindful of God and endure injustice without multiplying it. We do not have the right to return injustice for injustice. We do not have the right to stand up and demand vengeance from the world or enact vengeance on the world we leave that to God and in gracious activity we still work for the good of those who harm us this is what it is to do justice how do we do that how are we going to get that done to live just in an unjust world we are entrust ourselves to God by living in accordance with his call and following Jesus example and you walk through these verses there was no deceit in his mouth he never sinned Jesus never did anything unjust, so you never do anything unjust. Do not give in to the passions of the flesh. Abstain from them. We are never given the right to do this. Jesus didn't sin, so we're called to not sin. And you're like, ah, fat chance. I sinned this morning. I sinned just now. Like, you told me not to get mine. I'm like, yes, forget you. That's not the first thought. Sorry, I almost sinned against you. Right? Jesus didn't return unjust. He didn't repay evil for evil. He didn't revile while he was being reviled. When he was suffering, he didn't threaten. What did he do? Think about that moment, that the peak, the pinnacle of his suffering. What was he doing? Hanging on the cross. Was he calling down angels? Smite them! No, he was concerned about his mom. And he says to John, John, here's your mom. Mom, here's your son. He's looking at the soldiers who are gambling over his clothes. Oh, God, Father, I can't wait to see them burn. No, that's not what he said, is it? He understood the blindness, the deception. Forgive them. They know not what they do. Who do we look like when we stand up and we start to pretend that we have some right to pay people back? Not Jesus. Entrust yourself to God. It's, it's what Jesus did. He entrusted himself to God. You know what he said when when, when Pilate is, is, is saying, Hey, 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 don't you know that I have the power to give you life or the power to kill you? Don't you know that what, what was Jesus' response? You only have authority over over me because it's been given to you from above. Do you realize that we live in America not because we chose America, but because God chose America for us? Do you recognize that every Chinese Christian that lives in communism doesn't live in Chinese communism because they chose Chinese communism, but because God chose that for them? Who are we to entrust ourselves to? The government? To the master that rules over us at work? They only have authority over us because it's been given to them from God above. Can, can, can we leave? Yeah, I, I mean, you're suffering persecution and oppression. We see the church move and migrate. Absolutely, go and proclaim the gospel all the way. Right? Don't go just to escape. Go proclaiming the gospel, but entrust yourself to God. At every, that's what Jesus did. And then finally, we see this this, this role that there's no way we can fill. This example that we can, there's no possibility of us. Living up to it, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. We can't do that. I can't die as anybody's Savior. You can't die as anybody's Savior. But we can live in such a way that we encourage one another and spur one another on to good works. We can live in such a way that we call one another to live just lives in an unjust world. That's why we've been doing this, this series. We can call each other to go out into the world and instead of... Go out and live the life that everybody is living. And instead of fighting justice for justice in the way the world fights for it, we can call each other to go out into the world and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all of Jesus' commands. Because look at what he did. He bore his sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to it so that we could live justly. We can go make disciples of Jesus. Teaching them to obey so that they too can live justly. Always trusting He is with us even to the end of the age. Listen, this is not a call to progressive passivism. This is not a call to conservative ideology. This is a call to live the gospel in front of the world, to be very active, to be very proactive, to be very purposeful and intentional, set down the desires of your flesh and live for the glory of God in front of a world that desperately needs to know his glory. Otherwise, they will be facing the condemnation of his judgment. So get up out of this place, and you go out in the world, and you live just in an unjust world. And as you suffer, you do what Jesus did. Don't, don't, don't multiply injustice. Don't repay evil for evil. Entrust yourself to God and continue to live so others can do justice. Let's pray.